morning, everybody. Joy to see you. Why don't we pray together? Father, we recognize the weightiness of what happens, the significance of what happens when we open the scripture, when we read it, when we hear it, when we speak it, when we study it. Your spirit is, in a sense, released into the lives of your people, and we do pray that his work through your word will be evident among us today. May we stand and behold the wonders of your word, and may we be transformed unto the glory of your great son. Father, it's in his name and for his sake that we pray together. I wonder how many of you have heard of the American comedian, Steve Harvey. Ever seen Steve Harvey before? Yeah, you might know him from some of the shows that he hosts, Little Big Shots, of course Family Feud. Don't lie, I know you watch those compilations on Facebook. I know you do, and they're hysterical. But, but Steve, a few years ago, became known for something of much less esteem, unfortunately. The year was 2015, and he was hosting the Miss Universe pageant. And as it goes with pageants, I'm not an expert, but, but it comes down to two usually at the end. And, and, and like most pageants, again, Miss Universe came down to, to just two contestants, Miss Columbia and Miss Philippines. So all the anticipation is built throughout the night uh, in front of a live audience, in front of millions of viewers with all the anticipation, Steve Harvey enthusiastically announces the winner, Miss Columbia. The confetti fell, the flowers were given, the crown was placed on her head. And the only problem is that Harvey had mistakenly announced the wrong winner. And after four minutes of celebrating the wrong person, they came back out and apologized, and they had to take the crown off of Miss Columbia and put it on the real winner, Miss Philippines, and it was just a wreck. It was just a train wreck, a disaster, uh, which Harvey lamented uh, and apologized profusely, but, but unfortunately the damage was already done. I wonder if you have ever really blown it. I don't just mean like kind of a gaffe or an honest mistake like Steve Harvey, but, but re I mean really messed up intentionally knowingly, harmfully to, to yourself or, or to someone that you love. I think if we're honest, we've all been there. And I was wondering this week, you know, when the dust settles to all of our mess and the quiet of our own minds, how do we feel? What are the types of things that we are thinking about in the aftermath Maybe regret, maybe sadness or guilt, longing to, to go back and try again. Maybe, especially if you're a Christian, even thoughts about how God might respond to this situation. Right? What's he going to do? And how could he possibly love me or care about me? How could he possibly do anything useful with me or my life after this epic screw-up, this epic failure? Well, as we pick up the story of Jonah this morning, I wonder if at this point in his journey he wasn't thinking some of the same things. Right? In the wake of his rebellion against God's call, likely still covered in vomit and fish guts, he's 
wiping himself off on the, the shore of God's deliverance, thinking, well, what next? I mean, what, what could God possibly do at this point? And so it's with those questions that I invite you to turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah 3, you'll find it on page 775 uh, of the Pew Bible. And if you, you happen to forget a Bible today, please go ahead and use that Pew Bible. You know, this is a, a narrative account. It's especially important to follow along. There's so many great nuances in the story. So turn over to page 775, Jonah chapter 3. My dear friend, Pastor Marty, set us up so well last week in the first two chapters, and today we'll finish this story. I'll go ahead and read through it all, uh, so do exercise that good staying power and mental discipline as we get through the rest of this text, and then we'll, we'll walk back through and take a look at the rich truth this book presents to us. Jonah 3 and verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, and going a day's journey, he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed the robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes, and issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from the fierce anger so we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said while I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city, sat to the east, and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade so that he would see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant, made it come up over Jonah so that it made a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, so it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This is God's word. 
Apparently the Oscars were this week. I didn't watch, but I have to say that this little prophetic book in the Old Testament has all the drama of an Academy Award-winning film. So to, to organize our journey through the final two chapters of Jonah, why don't we just break it down into two very basic and simple scenes. We'll call scene one, the great mission of God, and scene two, the great mercy of God. So the great mission of God, the great mercy of God, two scenes to form one cohesive, redemptive drama. And beginning with scene one, the great mission of God, we see the lights come up and we look to verse one, where the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise. Go to Nineveh. And we do well to pause here for just a moment because there's a lot of ways that God could have dealt with Jonah at this point. He had saved him and he very easily and understandably could have just kind of moved along down the line, maybe found a more willing or pious servant. But he he didn't do that. God came to Jonah again, offering him another opportunity to obey him and to join him on his, his great mission. Here God shows himself to be the God of second chances. He shows himself to be graciously and sovereignly committed to his mission and also to the people that he calls to be involved in that mission. Similarly, I wonder if you've heard the story of another man. Uh, This is a man who was born for destiny. And even though his early days were pretty dangerous. God preserved him through those days because he was destined to be a great leader of God's people, an instrument of deliverance in God's mighty hand. Until one day he killed a guy, buried the body, and flew out of town into the shadow of his unrealized potential. If you don't recognize that one, maybe maybe the story of, of another guy, a guy that God called out of a pretty ordinary, fairly mundane life. And he, this guy, if you can believe it, actually walked alongside of God. He received divine insight into the deep mysteries of life. He performed miracles. Until one day, things got a little hairy for him, and he rejected and denied God, not once or twice, but, but three times. These are, of course, the respective stories of Moses and Peter, two men who, very much like Jonah, very, very much like us, were deeply flawed. And yet, and yet, God in his kindness did not give up on them. He pursued them. He was persistent, the hound of heaven, if you will. And I don't know about you, but I find that super encouraging. As someone who has blown it time and time again, I'm so thankful for the God of second chances. What's more is that these second chances all led back to God's mission, right? Moses restored to to mission in Egypt, Peter to Jerusalem and the nations, and of course here, Jonah, in his mission to Nineveh. So we continue along in verse 3, and we catch, as we go there, the substance of this mission. What's the essence of the thing? And God says, go to Nineveh and call out the message that I tell you at the end of verse 2. God gives Jonah a word, a message that he wants him to proclaim. And it's not that unlike the mission that the Lord Jesus gives to his followers. We see it played out all over the New Testament, I wish we had time, but from the Great Commission to 
the growth of the gospel word in the book of Acts to the faithful, simple, foolish preaching of the Apostle Paul, we see Christians are given a mission that centers on and prioritizes, among all other things, speaking a message. This reminder from Jonah is pretty timely, I think, for two reasons, at least. One, uh, a research survey was released by the Barna Group a few weeks ago, and the results of this poll showed that almost half of practicing Christian millennials, I'm sorry, millennials, you're an easy target these days in these things, but, but about half of practicing Christian millennials think that evangelism is actually wrong. Not just hard, not just difficult, but wrong. I think this is also timely because there are a lot of questions these days, and I'd say some confusion around the question, what is the mission of the church? What are we here to do? Some might say uh, the church's mission should be to focus on things like social justice or political reform. Others would propose that, no, no, it's more like meeting the physical or emotional needs of a particular societal group. Others still would say that the mission of the church is more consumeristic, you know, providing services rendered, a really good children's ministry, student ministry, pastoral care and counseling, those types of things. And to be clear, very clear, these are good and helpful things, many of which God actually commands for lives of obedience and godliness. But when it comes to mission, the main thing, we absolutely miss the mark, friends, if we start defining and talking about Christian mission as something that doesn't center and prioritize on speaking the word of the gospel to other people. Prayerfully and, and winsomely and respectfully and gently, but, but speaking nonetheless. It was true for Jonah and it's true for us. And while I wish we had more time to spend on this issue, I would uh, commend a book to you. We have it available in our bookstore uh, called What is the Mission of the Church? by Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert. Our pastors and elders have read through this book. It's been immensely helpful. I think you'll find it nuanced, clear, and helpful in relationship to this conversation. So getting back to Jonah, we continue along. And this time, as we get to verses 3 and following, we are encouraged that Jonah responds in obedience this time. So Jonah has made his way to Nineveh. He's now walking through the streets of this great and immense city, calling out, verse 4, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, we don't know for sure, but this is most likely a summary of Jonah's message, more than his full manuscript. But, but between this summary and the response to the people that we catch later, we can deduce that, that Jonah's message was, was very likely one of clear warning and a call to repentance, to turn to God in faith. This, of course, is an essential element to any faithful message proclaiming the truth of who God is, the call to turn to him and to trust in him. And what happens next in this story is amazing. From these simple words, the people actually respond. Verse 5, you can see it for yourself, and the people of Nineveh believed God. Getting to the end of chapter 3, we can see word even reaches the king who calls for national fasting and mourning and national repentance, even down to the animals. And in verse 8, these words are so telling. He says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from violence in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and, and relent so that we may not perish. What a question. Who knows? 
not presuming upon God's mercy, but instead entrusting themselves to it. And with that question, the lights scene one fade to black. What is God going to do? And then the lights come back up, leading us into scene two, the great mercy of God. The great mercy of God. Look with me at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. This is remarkable. And it's even more remarkable as we think about the kind of people that God, in his sovereign mercy, is choosing to spare. We haven't haven't talked a lot about the Ninevites over the last couple of weeks, so it's worth mentioning uh, the type of people that they were. We know something from them based on the text itself. Back in chapter 1, we heard that their evil had come up before God. The king was calling them to turn from wickedness and and violence, and so without going into too many unsavory details, and there are many, just know that, that, that these folks were no friends to God. They were no friends to God's people. They were, they were a wartime people known for their harsh brutality and their, their lack of mercy. You might say by certain standards, these, these were the worst of the worst. The worst of the worst. And that should cause us to just marvel at the extravagant mercy of God. You know, like scratch, scratch our heads a little bit and say, man, this God really is committed to saving people. This God is all about showing mercy to undeserving people. He really is, as we read in the New Testament, expressing a desire for all, all types of wicked people to come to repentance. And this should also encourage us deeply because if God is willing to show mercy to Nineveh, then maybe he's willing to show mercy to us. In fact, if you're here today and you're still contemplating what it means to be a Christian or becoming a Christian and and perhaps in that tension in your mind, you feel like you're just too far gone for God. You're beyond repair, you're beyond saving. And the good news that we see from the character of God in the book of Jonah is that you are not. You are not too far gone. You're not beyond the reach of his mercy. His arm of mercy extends further than your sin or your rebellion against God, and he's holding it out to you in this moment. So I would commend you to look to Christ, to to think about and to contemplate the validity and the implications of his life, of his death, of his resurrection, and to, to consider putting your faith in him, and to fall into this extravagant mercy that we see God extending to Nineveh. In fact, as we all gaze into this deep pool of God's mercy, we really catch the deepest meaning of these two chapters in the book of Jonah. Namely, that God's great mission to save is compelled by his great mercy to sinners. God's great mission to save is fueled, is compelled by this great mercy that he extends to sinners. From the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. Ephesians 2, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, 
made us alive together with Christ. Charles Spurgeon said, God's mercy is so great that it forgives great sins to great sinners after great lengths of time and then gives great favors and great privileges and raises us up to great enjoyments in the great heaven of the great God. God's mission to save is compelled by his great mercy to sinners. And this sounds like the perfect place to end, doesn't it? I mean, in a, Jonah goes, he preaches the simple message, an entire city turns to God, at least in some capacity, and he pardons them all. Mission accomplished. The end. But it doesn't end here. It's curious. And it's because this great mercy of God is still working, particularly in the life of Jonah himself. And so we press on to chapter 4, which begins with Jonah, who we might expect to be rejoicing and worshiping God and dancing around the city like Gene Kelly and singing in the rain. I mean, you'd think he'd be overjoyed. But instead, he is seething with anger and begging for death. Chapter 4 and verse 2, we have the prophet kind of pulling back the curtain to his own heart. He says, "This, this is why I made haste to flee. Here's the answer to the question. Why did he run? last week. Here it is. Verse 2, I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. What a contrast in characters here. Here we have God himself, slow to anger, and yet his mercy sits on a hair trigger, ready to extend it in just a moment. And Jonah, on the other hand, is going 100 miles an hour toward anger rather than mercy. And in that, all of the prophet's expectations of God, all of his kind of half-baked theology about mercy is laid bare. I, God, I, just, I knew you would do this. I knew you would because I know what you're like. You're always doing this. I know that you're abounding in mercy. I know that you're slow to anger. And I would rather die than see these people saved. They're wicked, God. Can't you see? One of the issues here, of course, is that Jonah had plenty of space for God's mercy to him. Salvation from the sea. Salvation belongs to the Lord. A second chance. But what he had no space for was God's mercy toward the real sinners. The wicked. And there is just so much for us to learn from Jonah here, right? I mean, how often do we set up these fickle, kind of half-baked expectations about God, right? I know, God, what your response should be. You best get to it. We bring these frameworks onto the character of God because, after all, we, we know better. And then when God doesn't behave the way that we think he should behave, we often respond perhaps like Jonah in anger. Or maybe we retreat back into apathy or we go down under the weight of anxiety, forgetting that the sovereign Lord of mercy is free to show mercy to whom he will show mercy. How often, similarly to Jonah, do we just kind of keep it 
together on the outside, but not on the inside. Preached at Nineveh. Check. Came to church this month. Check. Dropped 20 bucks in the basket. Check. Appeased my spouse by taking my kid to youth group this week. Check. And all the while, all the while, we have yet to allow God's mercy to penetrate all the way down. All the way to the root of what's really happening. And with that toddler tantrum display, uh, you'd think that God would probably be about done with Jonah by now. I probably would be. But he's not. Why? I think the reason is because God is kind to show mercy to pagans and to prophets alike. Jonah has by this point stormed out of the city, and we pick up the story in verses 5 and following. God questions the validity of Jonah's anger, and then, in his tenderness, he appoints a plant in verse 6. We see that word appointed a few times here in this section. God's doing a lot of appointing in the same way he appointed the great fish of the earlier chapters. God is sovereignly orchestrating every detail with care and intentionality. So he appoints a plant, and this plant provides some shade and some comfort for Jonah. And Jonah, you can see later on there at the end of verse 6, finally has gotten something from God that he wants, and so he's exceedingly glad. It's interesting, though. It says because of this plant, he's quite thrilled with what God is doing for him. He's not so thrilled with what God is choosing to not do to Nineveh. In fact, at this point, we might even be questioning if God has gone soft, right? After all, isn't he still God? And then we continue reading, and we realize that the sovereign hand of God is just weaving this tapestry, right? He's just kind of chiseling away at Jonah. He's working, he's plodding patiently, tenderly, and then sovereignly, as quickly as the plant came, it went. God removes it by appointing a worm, and then God appoints a scorching wind, and in so doing, unlocks the fury of Jonah's anger and shines the spotlight on the prophet's own need for mercy. Jonah exclaims, you know, it, it'd be better for me, God, to just die. How about you just kill me now? God responds again with a question. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Is it, is it helpful for you? Is it good for you? Absolutely. I do well to be angry for the plant. Just, just go ahead and, and, and kill me now. You know, I can't take this anymore. My theological framework has been blown up, God, and I got no space for this. Just take me out. And then in verse 10, we have what might be the most curious finish to any book in the Bible. It's worth another look. Verse 10. God says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left hand. Oh, and some cows. There's some cows there too. <laughs> and that's it. That's the end. It's like, well, did they run out of ink? Like, what, what's happening? The question is ironic. The question is chilling, and it... it it leaves us wondering if Jonah is, is going to get it, if he's going to fully participate in God's mission of mercy to save 
This question reminds him that God's mission to save is, is actually compelled by his great mercy. And ultimately, the main character of the book, as we learned last week, gets the last word. So how did Jonah answer? How would you answer? You know, Jonah's reaction at the end of this book is eerily similar uh, to another character from another story in the Bible, in the New Testament. It's actually a story Jesus told, one you might be familiar with, the story of the prodigal son. You know the story? In that story, the, the, the character we tend to think about or think mostly about is the younger son, right? After all, this named after him. He's the prodigal. This is the, the, real, the real sinner who swipes his inheritance early, turns his back on his family, goes and squanders his life in some mixture of wine and women. And then one day, while he's hanging out with the pigs, he, he kind of comes to his senses, and he's, and he's drawn home by thoughts of his father's generosity and, and mercy. And so he goes home. And then we know that the father, looking out from a far distance, sees him. And the text tells us that, that he felt compassion toward this son. And so he raced toward him and, and he embraced him and he gave him his robe and he killed the fatted calf and said, let's get the Wagyu beef and the filet mignons going. My son, he was dead and now he's alive, he's home. And the character, though, that we, we often overlook is the older brother. Because you see, like Jonah, he's on the outside of the party. He's not rejoicing at the mercy and salvation before him. He is furious. Dad, I have worked for you my whole life. I've obeyed your every command. And I've never had cube steak, let alone the filet mignon that you're doing for this, this son of yours who's crawled home with his tail between his legs. I will have nothing to do with it. And of course, the great temptation for us at this point is to simply stand in proud judgment over Jonah and over this older brother. The temptation is to walk out of this room in a few minutes just trying a little harder to be a better version of these guys. And of course, listen, we, we want to grow as a church family in our evangelistic conviction and, and our skill and ability to be able to weave the gospel in and out of everyday conversations. Of course we want that. We want to deepen our compassion toward those who are without Christ. But the truth is we are far more like Jonah than we care to admit. We too often lack evangelistic zeal and lasting compassion the truth of the matter is we, we all too often allow the fear of people or a lack of gospel confidence drive us deep into the shadows of personal comfort, hoarding this abundance of mercy that God has given us, all the while being less than eager to share it with others. The real truth that we see from this final chapter in Jonah is that we need God's mercy too. And thankfully, Thankfully, God has done something about this. Because the world really does need a better Jonah. It does. And it has one. 
Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, Just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Behold, he says, something greater than Jonah is here. This is the same Jesus who throughout that same gospel, Matthew's gospel, is said to have compassion on people because he, he saw that they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. So his heart swelled with compassion. God's great mission to save is compelled by his great mercy to sinners and the greatest expression, the pinnacle of both God's mission and mercy is found in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus, after all, is the one who left heaven, who came to earth on mission to extend God's saving mercy to the world. And what's more, he did it. He executed the mission perfectly with rich compassion. And yet, simultaneously, Jesus is also the one who on the cross took God's full wrath and anger against sin. All the wrath that God diverted from Nineveh that day landed on the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. As it does for all those who put their faith in him. God has found a way to simultaneously bring justice and mercy together and we see them colliding in the Lord Jesus. You see, in Jesus Christ we have the fullest expression of God's mercy for both prophet and for pagan. For rich and poor, for men and women, for Democrats and Republicans and Jews and Gentiles and young and old. In Jesus Christ, God is persistent in accomplishing his mission. Not only initially, this is great news, but also progressively in the lives of his people. Right? He just chisels away at us. He plods along sovereignly, patiently, intentionally mercifully and so we are left at a point of great hope there's hope for the Ninevite and there's even there's even hope for the reluctant stubborn prophet among us because God's great mission to save is compelled by his great mercy to sinners of every variety so as with Nineveh so as with Jonah so as with us, with that, will you pray with me? Father, help us to wonder and stand in awe at your great mercy. Thank you for the way in which you lavish your mercy upon us, the undeserving. Father, forgive us for the times when we have taken that mercy for granted or when we have hoarded it and built a, an empire of personal comfort. Forgive us for buttoning up when we should open up. Forgive us for those half-baked expectations that we often have of you for presuming upon you in ways that we should not. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we have through the personal work of Jesus. And we express that even now as we turn to his table. We thank you for him. And we pray in his name.